Hi, and welcome to the Real World Behavioural Science podcast, where we look at how behavioural and social sciences are being used in the real world to help change the public's health for good. My name's Stu King, and I have a background in public health, working in the NHS, local authorities and Public Health England as an obesity and physical activity lead, and as a behaviour change intervention designer in my company, Busybodies. I'm excited to be creating this podcast on behalf of the Behavioural Science and Public Health Network, who exists to bring together professionals with an interest in behavioural and social science and public health, and to improve the knowledge and practices used by professionals across a range of industries. Each month, I'll be speaking to experts from a range of industries to find out how behavioural science is being used to improve people's lives around the world. You can join the BSPHN for £25 if you're working and just £10 if you're not working, including if you're a student. And you get all the benefits of being part of an active and vibrant network of behaviour change professionals and enthusiasts. So today I'm speaking to Dr Amy Buker. Amy is the Behaviour Change Design Director for MADPOW, based in Boston in the United States. Throughout her career, Amy has focused on crafting engaging and motivating solutions that help people change behaviour, especially related to health, wellness, learning and financial well-being. Amy has worked as a senior strategist for CVS in their digital specialty pharmacy and with Johnson & Johnson Health and Wellness Solutions Group as Associate Director of Behaviour Science. Amy received her degree in psychology from Harvard University and her MA and PhD in organisational psychology from the University of Michigan and excitingly is the author of the upcoming Rosenfeld media book, Engaged, Psychology for Digital Product Design. Amy, welcome to the Real World Behavioural Science Podcast. Thanks, Stu. I'm excited to be here. So look, looking at your uh, CV, you've got a lot of experience in a lot of different fields and have been in the field for quite some time. Uh, so I'm really excited to have you here and to hear more about your experiences and particularly how uh, these translate for real people on the ground. Thanks. Yeah, I, um, you know, I've spent most of my career really trying to bring psychology and behavior change to real world intervention. When I was in school earning my PhD, the focus among the faculty in my program was in training us to be academics ourselves, to become faculty members in other universities. And at some point during my education, I really became interested in thinking differently about what to do with my skills and my qualifications. How could I actually take this research that I was able to do and apply it in a way that helped people in the real world? So um, around halfway through my graduate program, I decided I was going to look for a non-academic job. It was very unorthodox, <laughs> certainly um, ruffled a few feathers, I think, with that, but started looking for places where I could really apply psychology research skills with this goal of helping people. And, and how did you know that there were jobs that would allow you to do that outside of academia? I didn't know exactly what type of jobs existed. But just running the numbers, it made sense that there had to be jobs for PhD psychologists outside of academia. There, there just weren't enough faculty positions to accommodate all of the graduates. And clearly, people were going on to have fulfilling careers. I remember going through a period of time in graduate school where I was uh, reaching out to people that I found who had PhDs and setting up informational interviews to talk to them about their jobs. And it was almost like I'd add their job title to a list and then cross it off when it wasn't enough of what I wanted to do. Right. So I remember I, I, I spoke with one woman who worked as a life coach, which it turns out uh, the term is really meaningless in terms of a professional qualification. At first, like I heard life coach, I was like, oh, that sounds really interesting. That might be doing a lot of one-on-one -on -one help with people, but not clinical because I'm not a clinical psychologist. And then when I met with her, it turned out it's, it's really not a, at all um, 
you know, a regulated or controlled sort of a field. So I felt like, nope, I won't, I won't do that. When I began my job search, I did a lot of searching on keywords. So I, I didn't know the right job titles. So I would search on, uh, you know, research insights, qualitative interviews, survey design. Yeah. And through those sorts of things, I was gradually able to find some companies that uh, looked like they might be ones that might hire someone like me. It really was difficult though. This was in 2006. Okay. And there weren't, yeah, there weren't very many jobs at that time that were for psychologists in this sort of design or intervention design capacity outside of academia. So I remember even the first few job interviews I went on, I was almost always asked, why would you be interested in this? We don't see candidates like you. Why would you do this? And I really had to think about how to answer that question in a way that was convincing to other people. And at this point, were you just thinking you should go into academia? I thought I actually still applied for some academic jobs. I was afraid to totally cut the cord there. Yeah, I'm not surprised. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I, so I did. Uh, I certainly did. And I will say the first job that I landed was not a strong fit for me. I was doing research for a company, an agency that was working with pharmaceutical companies to help train their sales forces anytime they had a new product rollout. Mm -hmm. So we would take their marketing strategy or information about that drug and create uh, you know, training programs around it, really fun educational content so that the sales force could quickly learn what they needed to know. And I was doing additional research, running focus groups with physicians, doing surveys, trying to figure out are there different ways that they can talk about this product to help connect with their audiences. And I honestly really didn't care for the work that much. It was, um, you know, that the marketing and sales approach wasn't what made me excited. But what did make me excited was the health aspect because it was clear how much health matters to people. It seems silly to say that, of course it does, but all of a sudden I was in this professional role where I was seeing what pharmaceutical companies were doing and how many touch points they had with patients, either through physicians or directly or through other people who are part of the healthcare ecosystem. And that was really exciting to think about how could I use psychology in this environment to help people. It's a really interesting point you, you made there about health matters to people, of course it does. Actually, really, the absence of health matters to people because that's when they consider it. When they've got health, and um, that, when they've got health, they don't tend to consider how much health matters until there's an absence of health. Yeah, that's totally true. I think it's. Um, I just was saying to someone the other day, and this is not my phrase, but it's like, would a fish know what water is? Probably not because they're in it all the time. Yeah. So I, I think you're right. Oftentimes people don't realize how important health is until it's yeah. gone. And that is actually also a challenge with my work with behavior change in health, especially because, um, you know, I, I worked for a company whose name is Wellness and Prevention. So a lot of my projects have been focused on helping people stay healthy, helping them prevent mm -hmm. the onset or the progression of disease. And it can sometimes be really difficult to create any sort of sense of urgency with people who don't understand what it might mean to them to move away from their healthy state. No, I, t I totally agree. Our work in, um, you know, of course, in public health, there is a, a preventative side and then there's a, a more treatment-based side. And the, um, the, the, the difficulty we have is, A, in getting people from uh, the lower socioeconomic groups to engage because we know that they're less likely to engage, and B, mm -hmm. to get people to engage with preventative behaviours for that very reason that you just mentioned. There's no urgency mm -hmm. to do that. And, I, and my field of obesity right. particularly, you know, 
you you just gradually can get bigger and bigger and and, and before you know it, you sort of turn around and look and, you, and you've put on quite a lot of weight before you're actually sort of in a position where you say, actually, I need to do something about this this now. And particularly with kids, we work a lot with kids um, who, are, who are overweight and their parents are sort of, you know, denying some of it. They're, they're hoping they're going to grow out of it, all that type of stuff. And then a few years later, they sort of look back and say, we could have done something about this earlier, but there's just not the urgency. And, they, and there's also the hope that it's going to change. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I think you make a really good point there, too, about how when changes happen gradually, we don't notice them until it, they really become significant. And I mean, you think about something like the strategy of weighing yourself every day. That's exactly why that's so important. But it's really hard to get people to think about it that way. Absolutely. Yeah, no, you're right. And so you mentioned some of the um, the challenges that you're facing. Could you tell us a little bit about your, your current role at, at Mad Power, a little bit about what Mad Power do? Absolutely. So Madpow, we uh, we call ourselves a strategic design consultancy. That's the language that we've landed at. But we are a uh, research strategy and design firm that is hired by other companies to do work for them. So we primarily work with companies in the healthcare industry, and we define that really broadly. So that's pharmaceutical companies, it's health plans um, or health insurance plans here in the United States. Sometimes it's the hospitals or health systems who are actually delivering care. Sometimes it's societies, like we've done work for the American Medical Association. Um, they own the journal of uh, JAMA, the journal of the American Medical Association. <laughs> so they're doing a lot of research, advocacy, policy creation. But we do work across all, all aspects of the healthcare ecosystem. We do some work in financial services. So in my bio, you mentioned financial wellness. And in particular, when we do work in finance, it's often around the finances associated with healthcare. So uh, you know, the United States healthcare system, I think, is pretty unique in how complex it is and how expensive care can be. And so there's a lot of work that we've done around people um, selecting health insurance plans, using that health insurance in a way that minimizes their costs and helps them connect with the best quality care and that kind of thing. And then we also sometimes will do work in what we call our social good categories. So uh, MadPow considers itself a purpose-driven organization. We try to seek out projects that we believe are somehow doing good in the world and helping people. And sometimes those projects don't fall within the health or the finance categories. And so we've done some work in education. We've done a little bit of work in sustainability. And that all fits into that category. It's a small percentage of our work, but it's one that I think is really exciting. And so you mentioned um, the, the the financial wellness. I actually thought you meant something mm -hmm. different to that. I, I, I thought you meant something about um, the mental health challenges that come with having financial issues, um, which we see a lot when we're working with people in the, the lower socioeconomic groups that we work with in public mm -hmm. health, for example. Getting them to sort of take control of finances can often be, or, or even put themselves in a position where they're able to earn enough money to support their family and then make mm -hmm. some sort of health-based change is a real priority. Is that something that you touch on or is that is it more about the choosing of plans and stuff? No, we do touch on that as well. So I think we originally got into the financial space because of its proximity to the healthcare space with insurance and those sorts of things. But for example, I just recently worked on a project around helping people prepare for retirement and then as they transition into retirement, using their finances in a way that really supports the goals that they have. And so a lot of things like their worry, uh, their, their fears around retirement, uh, that came into play in that project. And we have also done projects where we've seen things. So the project may not be focused on finances, but we learned through our research, uh, to your point, that 
you know, maybe people are behaving a certain way because of a financial pressure that exists in the system. And in fact, we often find that there are financial incentives at play that affect people's behavior that we either didn't anticipate or they play a larger role than we expected. So we may have a project that we didn't think was a financial project, and then it ends up having a heavy financial component because of what we find in the research. Yeah, and it's a great point because if you have significant financial issues, your choices mm -hmm. are severely limited anyway. Absolutely. And I, I think even we've done some exciting, not just at MadPow, but at other places in my career, I've done some work that is really forward thinking with respect to digital health and using connected devices and those sorts of things. And oftentimes you have these perhaps effective behavioral interventions that are not really accessible to people because of their finances. Yeah, no, I, I, we, we totally have the same thing thing here, really. Um, and the whole purpose of the public health system is to reduce inequalities. Um, and mm -hmm. so if we're not dealing with or supporting people to help themselves deal with um, financial issues, then behavior change is really tricky for them. Um, so it's a big priority for us. Yeah. I remember a project I worked on at Johnson & Johnson that was focused on diabetes. And one of the things that came out through the research was that uh, you know, people, so the, the focus of the project, Johnson & Johnson, medication adherence and having people test their blood sugar as often as their, their physicians recommended, which is a place where a lot of people um, skimp. And one of the reasons they do that is because the testing supplies are expensive. Every time you test, it costs money. And if somebody is strapped for financially, they uh, may limit the number of times they test in order to try to save money. The, the thing that we were surprised about, we knew that the, the expense of the testing supplies was going to be an issue. What we were surprised to find is that the expense associated with food was sometimes also an issue. And people were sometimes making choices to prioritize buying groceries over buying their medical supplies. And again, that makes sense, but it wasn't until we really started to talk to people and observe the choices that they were making that it became clear that it, it was a trade-off that they were considering and making a deliberate choice around. And so the intervention really was less about medication adherence per se, and it was more about how do we help people get healthy food on the table at a lower cost. Yeah, and that's, that's when, when you were talking earlier about, um, about the stuff you've done in your career, and I, I was thinking particularly about the fact it was around 2006, there wasn't a whole heap of the behavioral economics out at that point, um, you know, Daniel Kahneman hadn't released Thinking Fast and Slow. Uh, it wasn't quite as ubiquitous as it is today. So um, how, I mean, you've seen that then take hold over the last decade or, or slightly more. So can you, can you talk about what, you, what your experiences have been in, in watching the, the growth of behavioral economics and how that's impacted on the projects that you've worked on? Yeah, it, I think the growth of behavioral economics has been a real double-edged sword for the type of work that I do, because I'm often thinking about what I'll call sustained behavior change that takes place over the long term. So, you know, with your work on obesity, I'm sure you have a similar focus where it's much less about getting people to do a one-time action and more about having them create a habit that they repeat mm -hmm. over a long period of time, maybe for the rest of their lives, because they won't get the outcomes that you hope they'll get if they just do something one time or a few times. Yeah, totally. And so my approach to that has typically been to think about motivation. How do I help people connect to a deeper purpose or a more meaningful goal and really see that these health behaviors are supporting something they care about? Behavioral economics is at a little bit of a crossroads with that because it's very focused on the snap decisions people make. Even the, the slow brain is still, I mean, they're, they're still talking microseconds. So this is not necessarily a carefully considered decision that people make. 
And those tactics are especially helpful at one-time behaviors. So you look at some of the interventions the Behavioral Insights team has done, for example, in the UK, which I think are incredibly clever, and there's a lot of value in them, both where they've been done and in healthcare. So uh, you know, having people pay their parking tickets more quickly by using normative data and presenting that in a certain way. We've actually done some work with that with medical billing and had some success there. So it has application, but I, I wouldn't say that those tactics necessarily work as well for those long-term behavior changes. And so as behavioral economics has become more popular, people will hear that I do behavior change or that I'm a psychologist. They know behavioral economics and they get excited and they say, oh my gosh, let's, let's do a behavioral economics project. And it turns out that the behavior they're trying to change is really one of those more long-term sustained behaviors. And so there's a little bit of a negotiation that I find myself having to have very frequently about, you know, I know that these are a really attractive toolkit. There's a strong evidence base around them. There are a lot of really fun to read books out about them. I mean, Nudge is a really fun book with lots of vivid examples. And I, I almost feel like I have to tell people, no, like behavior change is often more complicated than this makes it out to be. So I love that it's gotten people interested. And I think that it has opened people's minds to the idea that psychology and social science can help change behavior. But what I wish people would, would know, what I hope they come to know in the next several years is that there really is a lot more behind that. There are other approaches to behavior change. And sometimes you have to reach for a different tool in the toolkit. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate what you're saying. Uh, why um, you say so you mentioned social science there? We, we, social science mm -hmm. is one of the things that, or oh, sociology. Here is that the same thing? Is, is are we talking about the same thing? Social science and sociology. So when I say social science, I'm using it as a broad category that would include psychology, sociology, anthropology, ah. and economics. And okay. I, I chose it because of economics, because Kahneman is an economist. Yes, okay, right, okay, I'm with you. Um, just wanna make sure we're on the same page because sociology mm -hmm. specifically is something that um, I'm particularly interested in here. Um, I, I wasn't when I went and did my master's in, in health and wellbeing, but I found a particular theory in sociology so compelling when I was working with families in the real world that it's mm -hmm. become a real interest for me, but I just don't think the language has translated into the public health world very easily. Um, I just wondered if, if you felt that sociology was factored into your work or are you, are you sort of, are you, are you more broad than that? So you know, I'm trained as a psychologist, but I think that um, sociology does come into play to the extent that we think about people as existing within systems. And as an organizational psychologist specifically, that, that does tend to be my lens. So thinking about the you know, immediate social system that a person is a part of, their friends, their family, their workplace, but also the broader cultural context that they live in. I think you, you do need to consider those things. And sometimes to go back to that um, fish, the fish and water idea, sometimes with our clients and the projects we work on, the social context is the same for everybody. And so we almost don't need to consider it as much. It's, it's implicit in the situation and understood. But I've done other work where we're perhaps recruiting a diverse group of people to be, you know, to take place in this behavior change. Or I've done work internationally as well. And in those cases, I find we really do need to take that much more society type lens alongside the individual based lens. Yeah, no, I, I see what you're saying. That's really interesting. Um, so um, where do you think the industry is right now with regards to behavioral science? Is it, um, in your opinion, where are we with, with behavioral sciences in your industry? 
Um, so I think that the industry of, I'm going to call it health, health behavior change with respect to behavior change. And again, that probably sounds funny, but I think that we're still pretty early on, maybe out of our infancy, but still in our childhood. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that now in the conversations that I have with people and with the types of organizations who are my clients, they understand that there is a place for behavior change science in helping people live healthier lives. But how that actually takes place still has some maturing to do. And I think one of the things that needs to happen is there needs to be a little bit more of an appetite uh, for, for a longer period of time to first of all understand what it is that people need because people are complex. Yeah. They're, you know, and people are different from each other. So research can take some time to really understand how to best meet a patient population or a user population's needs. And then once you've created an intervention and put it out in the world, it takes some time to see results. And so I think that as the industry matures, one of the things that will change is we'll get a little bit more of an appetite for this longer time period where we can both design things really well, but then also give it an opportunity to make the change that it's capable of. And where in, in the States, how, it, how would that happen in the States? Because um, I can tell you why it doesn't happen so much here. Uh, and that's because we have public health tied to political timelines in some respects. Uh, and so it takes, mm -hmm. it would take a really brave politician locally where they commission services to say, we're gonna commit to a 10 year prevention project and we're gonna you know, accept that it's messy and it's gonna be really difficult to, to evaluate, but that's the right thing to do because the science tells us that that should work. That's difficult for us. How, how would that happen in the States where you could commit to long-term projects? So we have a similar difficulty. Uh, you know, most of our healthcare is done through, you know, not not through our government. Uh, but in terms of policy, we certainly have that same issue where, you know, politicians are looking for a quicker turnaround, quicker results. In terms of our health insurance organizations, just to give an example, they are incentivized to provide quick results. They they have their business reporting at, at stake, so they may be doing even quarterly results turnaround. And I've seen projects where if they're not able to show some sort of savings, you know, a return on investment in six months or a year, that's it. The program has failed its trial period. Where I've seen some success and where I think there's promise is you do get these either brave people in some cases, or sometimes it's people who just have a little bit of breathing room in terms of their professional arena and the projects that they own to take a little bit of a longer view. So, for example, there's one health plan here in the United States, um, the company that I worked at that Johnson & Johnson acquired, we had these digital health coaching programs that were available to members of this health plan, and they remained available to members of this health plan for over a decade. And at some point, someone in that organization started to collect data on how much people who were using the programs were costing the health plan. So what types of claims were they making? Were they having surgeries? What types of medications were they being prescribed? How often were they coming in for the doctor? All that stuff. And they were able to collect an eight-year data set and then create a matched sample of similar looking patients in terms of demographics and diagnoses and see what they had cost during that same time period. And so they were able to show that over eight years, these programs, it was around year two or three, and I, I apologize because I haven't read the paper recently, so that may not be exactly right, but it was you know, not, not six months, but pretty early on in that eight years, the people who were using the programs were starting to cost the health plan less money. They were using the healthcare services in a more judicious way, I guess I'll say, because it's not about not using the healthcare. It's about using the healthcare when you need it and 
taking care of your health in a way that hopefully prevents you from needing it as much. So that was a really great opportunity for us, and we were able to use that study and gain a lot of leverage with other clients and help them kind of breathe through the discomfort of waiting through a longer time period to see if this would work. So it's when you can start to pr produce these proof points with the people who have either the courage or the ability to gather that data to make the case over a longer time period that I think we'll start to see some of the change. Yeah, no, I think you're right. That sounds... Um... That sounds great. I, I think some of that, some of that um, information from the insurance companies in the states actually helps to inform what we're able to sort of suggest works over here too. Um, the pro I think one of the main problems with all of these types of things, and particularly with with the notion of bringing new innovation into this um, this area, into public health and into to, to healthcare, is there's not much of an appetite for failure, even though failure is an mm -hmm. absolutely necessary part of innovation and growth. Um, I don't know if you find it the same in the work that you do, because you, you must be bringing failure to some organizations that you're working with. How do you prepare them for that so that they're sort of okay with, with it? Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And it's one of the things that I've actually really liked about the way that you've talked about your work and your career, because I know that you frequently talk about your know, failure is a key ingredient to ultimately succeeding. And I, I don't have a good answer because I, I just, I agree with you. And I think it's a challenge here as well. I have worked for larger companies where they talk about having a tolerance for failure, but the way that that usually manifests is they will pilot things or they'll do what they'll sometimes call test and learns, which are short-term trials of an intervention or a program. And when, when or if it doesn't become a smash success, it is sunsetted. That's the euphemism that they, they'll use, it's sunsetted. Yeah, so you know, I have I know someone who talks about trying to measure outcomes in a more granular way, so a more nuanced way, so that instead of just throwing out the baby with the bathwater, you can start to examine is the bathwater too warm, too hot, was there too much soap, is the baby not feeling well, is this bathtub maybe not the right size for the baby? Where you can start to tease out which variables may or may not have led to program success and then iterate on that. So far, I think the tendency has been to just do a yes, no, was this successful? If yeah. it's a no, you just halt the program. And then I think sometimes organizations are tempted to say that they do make failure safe, that they do experiment because they've had this pilot. But there's a lot of room to measure things differently and take that more nuanced view on the back end. And, and having worked with people one to one and in groups um, like, like we do in, our, in our, um, the programs that we run for, for, for supporting people with their weight, we, we see failure as an absolutely necessary part of it. And, and it's, so value, it's so valuable if you can um, you know, re reimagine what failure means, what it means to fail. So we put everything in the context of experiments with them so that they know that it's not all or yeah. nothing and it's... Uh, a, a perfectly normal thing you know there's no no one makes plans and they go completely according to plan like there's, it just doesn't happen partly because we're overly optimistic in the way we plan and partly because we just don't ha have a, a real a really good idea about the level of habitual sort of uh, well the level of habits that exist in our lives and, and, and what drives our behavior and, and just how susceptible we are to things like environmental cues uh, and, and that's some of the stuff that we do with our families and, and with the people that we work with to help them manage their weight is get them to realize that you are not going to get this right first time. It's almost impossible. And that's perfectly normal. And you should be OK with that. 
Yeah, um, one of the things that I found to be a successful, or a tactic that can be successful, you need to be careful with it, is letting people know how often others have failed. So I've done a lot of work with smoking cessation, and I think it was the British Medical Journal a few years ago, the number that people always said was that most people who ultimately quit smoking have to try seven times before it takes. Yeah. And uh, BMJ, I think it was BMJ, published a study where it, they said, no, actually, it's much more than that. They're trying hundreds of times because those previous studies that said seven, they were only counting sort of the big, dramatic, grand quit attempts where somebody yeah. tells their friends and family and like puts it on paper. But there are a lot of times in a smoker's life where they may make an intention to themselves that they won't pick up the next cigarette. And then, you know, they, like you said, something in their environment, mm. it, it's the time of day that I normally have a, a cigarette or I get in my car to drive home and my pack of cigarettes is right here. Yeah. So people we or, or drink with usually for, for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things I found is really helpful is letting people know that it's very common for people to fail, but you just have to be careful to let them know that in a way that doesn't say you never have to succeed. It's not important for you to keep yeah. trying because this is really hard. It's really about striking that tone of, of course you'll fail, but you're gonna try again. And one day, like all these other people who failed and tried again, you'll, you will also be successful. Absolutely. Okay, uh, moving on. So could you speak to us about what you think the best and the worst practices that you've come across in your industry? Yeah, so in terms of the best practices, I think one thing that works really well is when people have a multi-channel approach to behavior change. So when they think about all of the different ways that they talk to their consumers and how to make those things work in harmony to help people with behavior change, instead of, for example, just putting an app out into the world and hoping that people use it without doing anything to support the changing of their environment, I've done a lot of work with business-to-business -business sales models where we would create a wellness intervention or a health intervention and then give it to either a health plan or to a large employer to roll out to either their members or their employees. And we noticed that people who use those sorts of programs would do well, but not a lot of people would use them. And so we started to think about how do we support engagement and uptake of the actual programs and then that kind of broadened into and how do we also help remake the environment that they're going to every day to the extent that we can to the extent that we have control and we found that you know if you if you can create a set of communications that help contextualize health and put it into harmony with the other things that are happening in the organization if you can help to uh, one thing that we would sometimes do with employer groups is help them establish on-site wellness programs where people would create walking groups. We'd give them pedometers and they would have scoreboards in the kitchen and they could record how many steps each different team had taken and have these little competitions. But really weaving that into the actual person-to-person -person daily life of the company instead of just having them rely solely on this online intervention. Yeah. Which, again, was very effective if people wanted to use that, but by itself wasn't having the staying power. So. The more that you can do omnichannel, the more that you can help support people through different layers of contact, conversation, um, you know, providing online and offline support, that I think is the best practice that I'm seeing more and more companies realize they should think about. I love that, actually, calling it that 
omni-channel. I, I've not heard it called that before, but yeah, I, I mean, changing the structural environment within reason a, a, alongside an intervention um, and probably some of the, the rhetoric around um, being healthy in the workplace. Um, so yeah. we're talking about people at the individual level here. So I, I, and this whole podcast is about taking what people are doing in academia and industry and across public health and looking at how it translates into the real world. So the, the work that you're doing at Mad Power and the stuff that you've done in, in the past, could you give us a bit of a, an idea of who it affects, how it affects people's behavior and, um, you know, how, how you're at an individual level affecting people's behavior from the work that you're doing now at Mad Power? Yeah, so it's an interesting question because as an agency, almost all of our work is client project based. So we don't always get to shape the actual project that we work on the way that I might just as an individual who has opinions about where we can have the most impact in society. But um, I can give you an example of a project that I've worked on fairly recently that I'm really excited about that I think is changing both individual behavior and also group behavior. Um, we were, the, and this is an interesting one because it is health, but I had never worked with this type of group before. We were hired by a group called ERMI, which is the International Risk Management Institute. It's a group here in the United States that provides insurance and safety training for construction companies. So they were really interested in how they could reduce the rate of serious injuries and fatalities for construction workers. And it's, it's a really interesting um, glimpse of health because safety training and safety equipment for construction workers has gotten incredibly better in the last 20 to 30 years. They have really sophisticated safety equipment now. Uh, they go through pretty rigorous training, not just when they become a construction worker, but also at various points throughout their career. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes when they start on a new project, they get another round of training. So they really know the safety material. But if you look at the data on serious injuries and fatalities, the rate of those hasn't changed at all in the last 15 or so years. Oh so it's, it's a flat line. Okay. And, it's, and it's really interesting. So minor injuries, those have dropped, but the serious injuries and fatalities have stayed in a straight line. And so ERMI was really interested in, first of all, understanding why. And they, their suspicion was that it was something psychological because it's clearly not equipment, it's not a lack of information, but there's something that's stopping people from keeping themselves safe when it really matters. And their intention was they, they wanted to approach training differently. So ultimately their goal was to create a different sort of training. So we, were, we went to several different construction sites across the United States, different areas of the country so that we got a geographic mix and different types of work environments. Some of them belong to unions and some of them don't and that changes how they get their training. Mm -hmm. We interviewed them and we were able to observe their behavior on the job site. And it was really interesting because one of the things that we learned is that all of the construction workers and their supervisors will tell you that their safety is a high priority. They'll also tell you that completing the job quickly is a high priority. And if you ask them point blank, they'll say, oh, of course, safety is top. Safety is number one. But when you start to ask them to tell you stories or you watch what they're actually doing on the job, that doing the job quickly takes precedence. So if they're, if they're in a situation where they could either you know, finish this task. I have I have a ladder here, but the ladder is a little bit too short. I'd have to stand on the top rung and that's not safe, but I could reach my thing if I did that. Or I can pause, I can take five minutes and walk all the way across the construction site. I can get the correct ladder, carry it back, set it up, and then do the project safely. They're gonna use the short ladder. Mm -hmm. we, we Not only did we hear that in the stories they told us, we saw it happen as we were walking through the construction sites. It was 
and, and these seem like small things, but as you probably know with accidents, it just takes a second and you know serious damage can be done. And so a lot of what we ended up thinking about is how do we help people stop in the moment and really be cognizant of the choice that they're making in terms of the goals that they have. One of the things that we noticed when we were walking through the job sites is that some of the workers would take like baby photos of their children and laminate them. Yeah. And either put put them on their tool belt or if they worked on a piece of equipment, they'd put like stick it up on the piece of equipment and they glanced at it through the day. And that was a really helpful thing for them to remember. You know, I've got to stay safe. I have a reason to go home tonight. Mm-hmm. Other guys weren't doing that sort of thing. And so, you know, one of the approaches that we took is how do you how do you start to make these goals more explicit and really connect back to the ones that matter to you? And um, the other thing that we noticed, similar to the point you made earlier about champions and people not, you know, noticing whether or not their managers are walking the walk and talking the talk, is that workers were noticing if their supervisors took safety shortcuts. And so one of the things that we ended up recommending is you really need to focus on safety training the managers as much as you're safety training the workers, Mm -hmm. because many times they may be setting examples that they don't realize are leading people in the wrong direction. And we did talk to people who said, I I thought that wasn't the right thing to do, but then I saw the foreman do it and I figured it must be okay because he's got so much experience or he's in charge. So really thinking about delivering the training, not just to the person whose behavior you want to change, but to the people who are influencing their behavior. And and there's the difference between the, the formal rules and the tacit rules and mm-hmm. uh, that's people more often than not follow the tacit rules they're, they're looking for cues from other people about what's you know which of these rules do we need to follow and which of these are, are not so not so important absolutely and i mentioned before too some of those um, social norms and cultural values that can be really difficult for people to even know or influencing their behavior mm. we saw that quite a bit here as well so um you know, construction workers, I think they're 100% of the people we talked to were men. We saw a few women on the construction sites, but it's a very masculine field. Mm-hmm. And so there was this sort of um, tough guy ethos that we heard when we talked to people too, that right. they were just so embedded in it. They didn't see that they were, uh, you know, trying to act macho at times when that was not to their benefit. Yeah. yeah. So being able to make people aware of that kind of thing too is, is important. And it's interesting because here we've got a um, there's a lot of work going on in well in mental health generally, but but also physical health, particularly in men um, in public health because men traditionally haven't been as involved in in their or as as keen to get themselves involved in in uh, taking care of their health. It's it's uh, it's an interesting shift that's going on at the moment. I'll, I'll move on. Um, what what do you think? we should be doing more of today to ensure that people in the real world benefit from good behavior change science? Well, I think first we should be using more science to determine what a behavior change intervention looks like. So one of the tensions that I've seen in my career, and it is starting to get better, but it seemed like for a long time you could either have a really scientifically valid intervention that was based on good behavior change principles and you know really was able to show efficacy or you would have something that was fun to use and beautifully designed and engaging and that people wanted yeah and and there really weren't a lot of examples that did both so one of the things that has been really exciting to me is to see more and more um, consumer-oriented types of health companies hiring people with behavior change backgrounds and bringing them into the process of developing their products. I think that that is really going to make a difference in terms of getting things that work into the hands of people who will use them. 
And I mean, I I have a friend who's a, my, Sherry Pagoda was a faculty member at the University of Connecticut. And she does a lot of work on looking at how behavior change interventions might work in the real world. Actually, you might be familiar with her work because a lot of it is also in the obesity area. Mm-hmm. And um, she looks at how. I'm trying to think, did she speak at the conference that I saw you speak at? Yes. Yeah, yeah I, she I was the I keynote. Saw, yeah, I saw I saw her there. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that her team does is they will actually test apps that other people have developed and try to figure out their efficacy. You know, she'll, she'll try to apply the science to these commercially designed apps. And I think that those sorts of partnerships hold a lot of promise. So I'm really excited to start to see those things come together. Mm. And I also think we need to be a little bit, I would love to see us develop a way to talk about apps so that it is easier to tell which ones are worthwhile. We have a really cluttered marketplace. Yeah. One of the things I've been doing for my book, I'm trying to include a lot of examples of how these behavior change principles come to life in different apps and programs. And so I've been going and downloading you know, hundreds of them and testing them out, taking screenshots. And it's been kind of amazing to me how many things market themselves as being behavior change apps, but then have very little substance to them or maybe really aren't what they said they were. Mm-hmm. It would be great if there was some sort of way to tell or grade different apps so that you would know, like, you know, this this is really a good one if you want to lose weight, or this is a really good one if you want to do activity. The Google Play Store and the iTunes Store are doing a little bit of that when they have their, like, Editor's Choice Awards. You can usually, those are usually better apps. Yeah. Well, but it's still not quite the same thing as having a scientist look through and say, yo, this one is really based in science in a really meaningful way. No, I agree. Um, I've just wondered, how do you use your knowledge of behavior change and behavioral science in your personal life? So how do I use my knowledge of behavior change in my personal life? Actually, I, it's, I, I have two ways. One is the ways in which I'm actually successful at making my own behaviors more what I want them to be. And the other is the way in which I get mad at myself because I still <laughs> do things that I know I shouldn't do. Yeah. But um, one thing that really works for me that I've done a lot of is committing to events. So um, I became a runner as an adult and really didn't like it at first, which I think is pretty common because the first few times you run, you're not going to be good at it. Your body won't feel good about it. Mm. Um, And I found that by signing up for races, I'm more likely to stick with the training. Even now that I'm an experienced runner and I no longer have as much bodily discomfort from it, knowing that I have something to train for keeps me keeps me engaged in the activity and it also helps me set specific goals that are meaningful. So I almost always have a couple of races that I'm signed up for and I mostly do it because it it keeps me committed to the behavior overall in my day-to-day life and that's something I've realized about myself. Um, Similarly, I I do wear an activity tracker. I'm a very, uh, you know, sort of type A numbers-driven person. So having that data helps, it just helps make me be a little bit more aware of my movement and make sure that I'm incorporating that into my life. And little things too, like if I want to go run in the morning, I set out the clothes the night before so that it's just one small obstacle that I've taken out of the way. Yeah. Um, A lot of those things. And then, and then, like I said, there are behaviors that I know I should be better about like, Oh, this, and Oh, you should do this. Uh, But you know, I, I enjoy having a glass of wine or more than one glass of wine. You know, I I like to have nachos and that sort of thing. And sometimes I do think to myself, like, you know, the strategies to not do this, you know, the strategies to be better. But um, 
I also do think that there's value sometimes in enjoying the things that you enjoy. And what I try to do, and this has made a difference for me, is give myself permission to engage in an unhealthy behavior if it is something I really want. So one of the things that I've found, especially as I've gotten to a point in my life where this is financially possible for me, is like, so I mentioned a glass of wine. I will buy a nicer bottle of wine. I won't just have the cheapest bottle of wine in the in the store, which is what I would do in grad school when I had yeah. no money. <laughs> yes. but, you know, now I have a job, so I can get a $20 bottle of wine instead of a $4 bottle of wine. And just those little things, making sure that if I am going to indulge in this, I really am indulging in it and not just doing it because it's a habit or because I'm not thoughtful about it. Yeah, or at least make, for, make, make sure that the first bottle of wine is $20. <laughs> right. don't really matter too much. They can be 4 or $5, that's fine. Yeah, um, no, I, I totally do that. I actually <laughs> absolutely do. Especially if I'm having a party, right? There's like the first round wine and then yeah. the, yeah, people the later one. After a while. Um, okay, moving on. So where can people go to find out a little bit more about your project or your work? There's a few places where people can go to find out more about my work. So first is I, I maintain a website. I haven't been doing as much on it lately because I'm writing a book and I find that most of my extra writing energy goes into the book. But it's um, amybuecherphd.com. It has all of my, um, you know, my, my resume, links to different presentations I've given and papers I've written, that kind of thing. So if you want to find any of my past work, that's a really good place to start. And when I was more active in maintaining it, I was using the blog portion of it just to write short pieces showing how to apply behavior science to everyday life. Great. Because I have a real, a real interest in making it accessible to people and showing them how it applies to the things that they experience. So my intention is that I will start updating that more regularly once I finish the book. But for now, like I said, most of my writing energy is going into the book, which is the second place that people can find me. So if you go to the Rosenfeld Media website, there is a page specifically for Engaged, and there is an email sign-up that people can use. If you put your email address there, you'll get information about when the book is published. And I believe they are planning to send out discount codes to people who are signed up for that specific list. And in my experience, it's not super spammy or anything, so you won't be signing up for tons and tons of emails from them. So that, that's also a good place. And then the third place is uh, madpow.com, where I work. So there's a little bio of me on there, but you can also see some of our case studies and examples of the type of work that we do. Great. Could you, could you tell us a little bit more about your book? Just, you know, it, it, a summary of what it's about and, and um, you know, what we could expect if we picked it up. Absolutely. Yeah. I wanted to write this book specifically for Rosenfeld Media because they uh, target UX professionals as their audience. And so one of the things that I've learned in my career is there's a lot of interest in behavior science and people who are not behavior scientists, but who see the potential of applying psychology in the work that they do for their users. So I wanted to take take my scientific knowledge and make it accessible for people who don't have that background in psychology and give them a little bit of a toolkit that they can use to start to think about creating programs that really engage people in behavior change. So um, the book is hopefully coming out later in 2019. I don't have an exact publication date yet, but I would say sometime in the fall. And it's really intended for those non-behavior change experts to start to understand how they might be able to use behavior change in designing and developing programs for people. Great. Uh, and then lastly, what would your advice be to someone who's interested in your field and looking to use behavioral science practically? So I get asked this question a lot, and the answer to it really depends on who's asking. 
So if it's somebody who's still in school or is thinking about going back to school, first of all, I, I do not recommend getting the PhD unless you are passionate about research mm -hmm. and doing deep research on a specific topic. Um, I have a PhD and I think it added a lot of value to the skill set that I bring to my work, but I, I think it's overkill for most people. And you will be miserable if you try to go to school for five years and it's not the thing you're passionate about. So if you are still in an age where you're considering a school program, I would look at either undergraduate or master's program and taking courses that are in social psychology. Um, I think anthropology is actually a really valuable field to learn from in terms of doing research. A lot of the methods that we use in behavior change design resemble what people do in anthropology. So embedding yourself in an organization or in a context and watching observing talking to people anthropologists are great at that and they um, they tell wonderful stories too and storytelling is a really important skill in helping people to understand how to translate research into the work that they do so i would say take those sorts of classes um, really think broadly if it's somebody who's later in their career, oftentimes what I recommend to them, first of all, is to read a lot. Again, um, I tell everybody to read a lot. I think that's just mm, it's the way to live life. Agree, yeah. <laughs> and not just reading things that you think are directly relevant, because there's so much learning. Like, I love to read fiction, and one of the things that I love about it is that it's a way to get a glimpse into how other people's minds work. Mm -hmm. you know, if you're doing behavior change, understanding how people think and the types of lives they might be living, the context they might be living in, like that's valuable. Mm -hmm. So I don't even think it has to be something that is a uh, professional book, so to speak, but just reading a lot, talking to people. And if you can, collaborating with people who have the behavior science background. I've had many colleagues over the years who don't come out of the type of background that I do, but over time have gotten really good at understanding some aspects of behavior change design. Uh, so that they can do pieces of the work by themselves. And when it gets a little thornier, they, they know when it's time to collaborate with others. So I think those early collaborations can set people up to do more of this sort of work on their own, as well as really know when that coll ongoing collaboration is more critical. Great. Okay. And, and it, have you got a, a specific starter book for that, for that person that's sort of later on in their career that you mentioned? Is there a, a key starter book that they should definitely start with or so I, I want to be sort of like cocky and recommend my own which is not published or even fully written yet that's a given <laughs> I, yours is a given okay yeah. let's, let's no I'm hoping six months from now that that will be the answer and that's really what I'm hoping for it to be um right now I I don't think there's any one book I have a reading list that I've put on my website because this is another question that people ask me a lot uh I, I send people a lot to the selfdeterminationtheory.org website. It's a little bit academic if you're not coming from a, you know, a background where you know how to read research papers or have an interest in reading research papers, but it's a really good way to get a comprehensive overview of that theory. There's a book I like a lot that is a little bit hard to get a hold of called Glued to Games by Scott Rigby. Okay. And it it's about the psychology of video games and why video games are so engaging for people, but it uses self-determination theory as the explanatory framework. And um, I'm sorry, it's Scott Rigby and Richard Ryan. So yeah, Richard so Ryan one is one of the originators of the self-determination. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, these are guys who are experts in self-determination theory, took this really, really fun context, and I think brought the theory to life. 
So that's a book that I recommend to people. I you can get it. I think Amazon still has it for Kindle. It's just a, it's not easily accessible. Nonetheless, it is worth it if you can get your hands on it. Um, yeah, that sounds really interesting. Amy, thanks so much for your time. I think it's been really interesting listening to your uh, your take on the behavioral science and, and your journey through it as well, actually, because you've got such a varied uh, experience through all these different different elements. And I particularly liked your route in, the fact that there wasn't a, a clear route in and you had to sort of work to cross off the list what you didn't want to do and what didn't describe what you you've, you felt you wanted to do and um, that you're now doing stuff that not only has that um, the strategic level um, focus, but also that you've you've got something that's actually impacting people on the in the real world in a real way, um, and you're able to use the data to sort of say that what's what works and what doesn't. I think it's it's a really refreshing approach that you you've got, and I know because I saw Dustin speak uh, I yeah. think the year before, and and I thought God, that sounds like a cool company. Um, if I was US based, I would definitely be hitting up Menlo, yeah. AdPow, these types of places because. Um, I think what you're doing is really interesting and it's it's um, it's great to know that that's going on uh, and that there's a focus on that from a, a health and well-being perspective. And uh, what did you describe yourself as a, um, a social purpose organization? Oh, purpose driven organization. Purpose -driven. Yes. I, I just think it's great that that's all happening um, and hopefully uh, and, and it's happening here in the UK, too. But I, 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 um, I really appreciate your time. Um, and oh, I'll, this was fun talking to you. Thank you so much for inviting me like this. This was really fun and I really enjoyed it. Great. Thanks again to Amy for being such a great guest. I'm sure that you'll want to try and find her on Twitter. Her handle was at AmyBPHD. Why not go on and see what she's up to? Uh, see when her book's coming out as well. We'll be back again next month with another interesting guest who's working in the field of changing people's behaviour in the real world. In the meantime, don't forget that you can join the BSPHN on www.bsphn.org.uk for just £25 if you're working or £10 if you're a student or unwaged. This gets a lot of benefits, including discounted fees for events, workshops and CPD sessions, access to a network of professionals from a range of different fields, regular publications, footage from all of the recent events and presentations and interviews with top experts in the field. You can also sign up for my blog at www.busybodies.com forward slash blog for my views on public health, behaviour change and my views on running a company with the express aim of doing meaningful work and having fun whilst doing it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review on iTunes. It will take less than a minute and may help someone to discover the great work that's going on around the world in behaviour change. Please also subscribe on iTunes and be sure to tell people through your social media channels. If you want to get in touch with me, I'm on at Stu underscore King underscore HH and I look forward to hearing from you really soon.